for one am very glad we are finally getting a fall. When it dropped from 100 degrees to 40, I was peeved. Because if it's going to go from summer to winter, I was going to be real angry. Because fall is my favorite season. I love it. You guys brought us here for our interview uh, at the peak of your fall colors because I think you were trying to lure us here with your beautiful trees. And it worked, so it was great. Yeah, yeah, it worked. It was great. Uh, but the, so the day that it dropped from like 100 to 40, I was like frantically rummaging through Jack's clothes, trying to find some clothes that would fit the poor kid in the wintry weather. And I found this really cute, those footy pajamas, you know? They're so cute, these little footies. They have little animals on the backside, and they crawl around, and there's like a raccoon face or something. It's so fun. Anyway, so I was like, oh, Jack, come here. Put it on, you know? And the sleeves were like up to here. And I tried to put the legs in, and his legs were like bent like this at like 120 degree angle. There was no way he was going to get his legs in those things because my boy is changing, right? And that's good and healthy because he's growing, and it's awesome. And mommy cries in the corner on occasion because he might last. Whatever. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. But change is healthy. Change is good. Now, four years ago, I attended my 10-year high school reunion. Anybody go to their high school reunions? Yeah. Oh, third. Wow. Nice. Nice. I just today got a Facebook message. Anybody want to do a 15? No, I'm good. Anybody here not going to be caught dead at their high school reunion? Any of those? I see that hand. I see that hand. All right. All right. Well, we went. I went to mine. Tommy's a year older than me. He's so old. And so he wasn't there. Uh, I went with my friends to uh, my high school reunion, and I was, I was kind of nervous going to it, you know, because 10 years was a long time, and I had changed a lot. Like, things had happened, you know? And so I was a little nervous, and I got there, and it was actually this really fun, wonderful, friendly experience. We all compared babies and see whose cheeks were the chubbiest, and JoJo won, hands down, by the way. And it was just really fun. And there was this, like, unspoken thing that was just like, you were who you were, and I was who I was, but we've all changed, and we're grown-ups now, and it's okay, you know? There are people there who were kind of like frenemies. Do you know what a frenemy is? Friends, but not really. Yeah. There were some of those there, and you know what? It was okay. We were adults, and we were mature, and it was great, and I had a good time. But there were a few of those people there, and I think you know who I'm talking about. There were those people who had not changed one iota since high school. The guys who still were bringing not water in their water bottles to the game, right? That was super fun. And uh, they were still hanging out at the whole old haunts and living it up on the weekends and doing all this stuff. And I was just struck with gratitude that I had been brought forth from that place, <laughs> that I had not lived, that I was not still living into the past, that I had experienced change and transformation. Because that, living into your high school glory days, I got one word for that. That is lame, my friend. <laughs> that is lame. Am I right? Okay. We weren't meant to live like 18-year-olds our whole lives. And frankly, who would want to, my personal opinion? Because to stay the same for years on end is indicative of one or two things. Number one, some kind of pathology. Something is wrong with you if you want to live like an 18-year-old your entire life. Okay? Or number two, just you're just kind of lame. You're too lazy to forge a new path. So you know what? I'm just going to do this forever, right? And it's lame. It's obvious, right? To stay the same for years and years on end is wrong. It's immature. It's absurd. It's unhealthy. And yet, and yet, it doesn't seem weird at all for people to come to faith and stay the same for year after year after year. The same struggle, the same sins, 
over and over again, the same attitudes and the same habits, still wearing those spiritual baby footy pajamas. But instead of calling out that stunted Christian living for what it is, unfaithful, we, and by we, I mean me too, we gloss over it by saying stuff like, oh, but it's a journey. Real change takes forever, meaning never, right? Or I'm only human, no one's perfect. Or in my personal favorite, it's just who I am and God accepts me. (laughs) And there is truth in all of those things. It is a journey. There is no magic wand moment when we are made perfect. We are fallen and we are wounded by sin and God still accepts us warts and all. But let's get real. If we never change, if we never experience actual transformation, we are just like those guys who were super cool in high school, but now we're just kind of lame. And I hope you know me long enough to know that when I say hard things like that, I'm talking to me too. Well, your church leadership team and Tommy and I felt like continual growth and grace was so important that it made it into our top five, our core values. And so Mount Home Naz, we don't stay the same. We respond to the Holy Spirit's call to walk down paths that lead to restoration through learning and growth in community. We don't stay the same. If we are walking with Jesus, but our lives don't change, we are doing it wrong. If we persist in a behavior and we are not getting the results we want, we're probably doing it wrong. For example, trying to make a phone call, can't get a call out, you might be doing it wrong. That's a calculator. (laughs) Trying to take a screenshot and not getting the results you want, you're probably doing it wrong. And lest you think I am mocking the older generation, there is always this. Can't hear any music out of that cassette tape you got there? You might be doing it wrong. (laughs) There was a whole YouTube video of this poor kid, and he's like, I think it's broken. Do I have to touch it? Do I have to, like, turn these circles? He couldn't get a a single, it was great. It was fabulous, and I felt so old. Well, if you're not getting the results that you expect, you're probably doing it wrong. Anybody know the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting different results. That is not the life in Christ that we are aiming for here, people. (laughs) If you attend this church for five years and you leave unchanged, we have failed. If you don't love Jesus more, If you don't love your neighbor more, if you don't give regularly to the church both your time and your resources, if you don't hunger for the word more, if you don't have an ever-increasing desire to be the hands and feet of Jesus to a hurting world, we have failed. Because at Mountain Home, Church of the Nazarene, we don't stay the same. So that's the goal. Life transformation, right? To respond to the Holy Spirit's call to walk down paths that lead to restoration through learning and growth in community. Simple but not easy. And I have a couple questions. Some clarifications, if it were, about this whole transformation thing. Question number one. What's the best I can hope for in this life? Like on a scale of one to ten, how saved from sin can I actually get? Like no struggles? That'd be awesome. No temptations? That would be fabulous. Or is sin just too big and too bad? And we're just kind of doomed to muddle through. Like, is freedom from sin even possible? Or am I just kind of stuck right here until heaven? 
So that's my first question. But my second question is this. Now, who is actually doing the work in this transformation thing? Like, am I just not trying hard enough? Or am I supposed to not try at all and the Holy Spirit do all the work? Because that'd be cool, right? Get to work, Holy Spirit. Tip-top shape. Well, let's start with the first question. What's the best I can hope for in this life? What we're actually asking is, is holiness a possibility? Or is it just some theological pipe dream that doesn't fly in real life? Now, I went to, Tommy and I went to college at Mid-America Nazarene University in Olathe, Kansas. And I was taking a class for my program called The Doctrine of Holiness. It was very exciting. And one of my professors, he was probably the oldest guy on staff. He had been through a lot of the holiness and sanctification debates in our denomination. And, and he was struggling. He was expressing some doubts about the language we had used to talk about holiness, words like perfect and sinless, right? And he said to a guy in the church foyer, I am not making this up, this actually happened. He said to a guy in the church foyer, I'm struggling with this language. And the guy says to him, hand on the Bible, says, I don't know what the problem is. I haven't sinned since 1952. <laughs> and we laugh because that's insane. Something had gone awry in this guy's life, okay? And let me assure you, that is not what I'm selling this morning. What I am selling is nothing new. In fact, it's a question from the beginning of faith. What does it look like to be free from sin? Now, back in the 1700s, when some folks like John Wesley, one of our theological like daddies, I guess you could say, um, he was living with all these people around him, theological traditions, and there were people around him who loved God, were faithful to God, but who always said that, you know what? Every single day, you are going to sin. Word, thought, or deed through things left done, undone and things you've done, you are going to sin, no questions asked. They believed that humanity was totally depraved and you would remain so until the end of the age. Bummer. And the more Wesley studied and the more he preached and prayed and talked with his parishioners, the more he thought, really? Like we have to sin every day? So even though we have been saved by the blood of Jesus, the life and death and resurrection of God, we are still slaves to sin? Is that the best we can hope for? A life defined by continual failure and defeat by sin. Is God's arm too short to save us entirely to the uttermost? Because you see, here's the thing. When we normalize failure and we give in to this idea that it's totally normal and it's healthy to stay the same forever, we are not shortchanging ourselves. We are actually shortchanging God because we are saying that, no, in fact, God, what you did for me through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus wasn't quite enough to set me free from sin. Forgiveness, yes. Freedom, no. And well, this is going to be hard to hear, but listen for a sec. Well, on the surface, that seems like a really humble, self-effacing, just trying to get real about my sin kind of attitude. It is actually the greatest position of arrogance. Because essentially, in denying that what God did in Jesus isn't enough to both forgive your sin and set you free from sin, is to say that, yeah, that might work for most folks, but you see, I'm the exception. My sin... My struggle is just so profound, so unique, that I can actually not be set from sin. Wow, really? You're the exception. Yes, yes, I am the exception. I am the lone human being in the world 
whose sin is just so great that even the blood of God cannot touch it. I am that special. You see what I mean? It's arrogance. And actually, it's an excuse to give permission to myself to continue in the same toxic, sinful patterns day in and day out. So we settle. We settle for just a little salvation, just a little forgiveness from sin, please keep me out of hell, but easy on the transformation, this whole freedom from sin thing. Well, Wesley concluded, that is not salvation. By salvation, I mean not barely, according to the vulgar notion of deliverance from hell or going to heaven, but a present deliverance from sin, a restoration of the soul to its primitive health, its original purity, a recovery of the divine nature, the renewal of our souls after the image of God in righteousness and true holiness in justice and mercy. Basically, Wesley is telling us, you don't have to intentionally go against the will of God as you know it or understand it. We don't have to continue as slaves to sin until we die. He was assured, he was so assured of God's great act of redemption in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He was assured that it was enough. It was abundantly enough to set us free from sin. And so, too, the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, is abundantly enough to bring us into the experience of freedom from sin that so easily entangles in this present perfect, imperfect life. So what's the best we can hope for? Sinless perfection? Never making mistakes or errors in judgments or mess-ups? Never making the wrong call in a situation? I think not. But what we can hope for and we should hope for is this, freedom. Freedom from sin, freedom unto God, freedom from the chains of bad choices and habits and hang-ups and the like, and freedom to live into God's love so fully as we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so as we keep saying yes. It is possible to not stay the same. But back to our other question. How? Like, it's great we can be set free from slavery to sin. It's great that God's arm is not too short to save us to the uttermost, but how does that even happen? Like, I'm a pretty practical person most of the time, and if you can't give me a clear explanation of how to get to point A to point B, I don't got time for that. So what's the how even look like? Is it me trying harder? Or is the Holy Spirit just whipping me into shape with a magic, like, holy wand? Because that would be sweet and much less messy. Is it grace or is it deeds, my actions? Oh, that is such a tired debate, isn't it? We can go around in circles hashing it out, right? Like, well, God does all the work, you know. Well, yeah, I know, but you have to contribute. Yeah, you're right. It's a both and. And it makes for a really great roundtable discussion of Bible study. But when it comes to my everyday, ordinary life, it's about as clear as mud. What does it look like and how does this happen? But here's the thing, the discussion is actually wrong from the outset because it assumes that the two parties involved in my transformation, namely me and God, are equal partners in this whole project. It makes the assumption that we bring just as much to the table as God does and we just have to figure out the right mix of God's product and mine to get the right cake. Wrong. Because let's get this straight. We bring a whole lot of nothing to the table. We are weak, and we are broken, and we are wounded, and we are fickle, and we are selfish. Don't agree? 
I mean, look at all the stuff that people have accomplished, Pastor. Humans are amazing. <laughs> all right, fair enough. We do cool stuff like medical advances and beautiful architecture and captivating art and literature. We can even cooperate between nations occasionally. <laughs> but let me ask you this. How many days can you go without sleep before you drop dead? How long, <laughs> personal testimony, how long does it take without a snack for you to get cranky and mean? <laughs> get real. Not long, I will tell you. If my whole day can rise and fall based on whether or not I remember to bring my granola bar to work, I am weak, people. And ask the staff, they will confirm. <laughs> if my whole perspective on the world can be shaded based on the fact that I didn't get a good night's rest, I am weak. It does not take much to pull the rug out from under us. And those are just a couple of our biological weaknesses. There are about a thousand other ways that you can kill us. But what about our moral weaknesses? I mean, our proclivity to prefer self, our tendency to put self on the throne to the detriment of those around us, all of those great contributions to humankind that we have made pale in comparison to the destruction that we have caused. The wars we wage, the abusive economic practices we engage in, the racism that we institutionalize and then ignore as imaginary, the corruption of leaders, the abuses in the secret corners of our own homes. We are biologically weak, but we are just as frail morally too. So let's stop pretending that we are equal partners in this process of with God because we're not, not even a little bit. We are made in the image of God, but we're damaged goods. We are damaged by the consequences of sin, both the sins that we have committed, but also the sins that have been committed against us. But here's the thing. Good news. Before we knew up from down, left from right, front to back, God's grace had already gone before God's pervenient grace. Before we had a clue as to how desperately needy we even were, God's grace was already guiding us, already wooing us, drawing us back to God. And then it happens. That moment when the Spirit awakens us to God's love and grace and we are called, we are invited to respond. Now the very definition of that word, respond, implies that our action toward God is secondary. The first action is God in love acting toward us. You know, but even then, even as we respond, even our response is saturated in grace. John Wesley said, God works strongly and yet sweetly to empower our ability to respond without overriding our responsibility. And that's the tricky part, isn't it? God empowers us to respond without forcing our hand. It's empowerment, not overpowerment. And grace comes in not just as a pardon for our sin, but as a power to heal, to heal our broken nature and allow us to respond in love back to God. And as we respond continually, faithfully, over time, empowered by grace all the while, we don't stay the same. 
We are transformed into the image of God's son. We enter into this lifelong character formation process, which is a total disappointment. I was really hoping for the wand. But it is wrought possible by that never-failing, always-initiating, ever-empowering, grace-filled love of God. Isn't God so good? To not only call us to be holy as he is holy, but to make a way for us to actually get there. You heard Tom read this morning in Philippians 2. He said, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work. For his good pleasure, amazing grace that makes a way for us before we even know how to ask, empowering us to respond without overpowering our will. You know, but what about that response? God's grace does all the heavy lifting, no doubt. But God in his love never overrides our will, and he creates this space in which we must say yes, right? And what does that look like, saying yes? On my very first district interview, I was 21, engaged to this dude, and I wasn't ordained yet. That meant I hadn't been given the title of elder and reverend, and and I still had to go to these yearly interviews with these preachers. And let's just say, I was the youngest person in the room, the most girly. (laughs) It was all a bunch of not young dudes. Nobody looked like me at all. I had to sit in the center of the room, and there was like a semicircle of pastors around me. And it was a little intimidating, to say the least, Okay. And most of, I grew up on that district, so they, most of me looked at me with this like grandfatherly eye, and they were very kind, but apparently they did not like one of my answers on my application, because I had to put this application in every year. They didn't like one of my answers. And so uh, this enthusiastic gentleman gets all preacher on me, and he says to me, sister, you can know the date, you can know the time that God sanctified you holy. Because I had said on my chart, like I hadn't written, like on April 27th, 1997 at 3.52 p.m., God sanctified me holy. I didn't write that down. Like I didn't have that experience. And he says, sister, you can know the date. You can know the time. And I'm not exaggerating. That is how he did it. It was intense. But you know what? I had trained for that moment. I was ready truly. I had prepared myself for that specific question when I might be called upon to answer this question of a pastor from a different generation and a different theological understanding. So very simply and very calmly, I responded as I had been instructed to respond by my doctrine of holiness professor. I said this, sir, I will acknowledge that I said yes in a moment in time if you will allow that there have been a thousand yeses since and there are a thousand yeses yet to come. There have been a thousand yeses, and there are a thousand yeses yet to come. Isn't that it? Saying yes to Jesus every time he calls. Saying yes to the Spirit as the Spirit stirs our hearts to obey. Saying yes. So how do you say yes a thousand times yes? Well, wouldn't you know? God in God's goodness has offered us specific disciplines that when put into practice ensure that we do not stay the same and that we are in fact transformed by the Holy Spirit. John Wesley called them simply the means of grace. Specific practices that do not, hear this, do not bring about transformation by themselves. Rather, they are practices that serve as kind of like channels 
like conduits through which God's grace, transformative grace can come to us. Things like receiving the Lord's Supper or reading scripture or prayer and fasting, tending to the poor, gathering with other believers, moral living, doing all the good you can, visiting the sick. You get the point. But here's the question, though. Am I transformed by reading the Bible? Like when I read the scriptures, do the words float out of the page into my head and zap all my bad thoughts? Because that would be cool. No. I am transformed by obediently immersing myself in the word on a regular basis and thereby creating a space in my life in which the Holy Spirit can bring about the change. Do you hear the difference? It's not a magic book. It's the spirit that moves through the word, making it alive and active, right? Now here's this. Am I transformed by fasting? By giving up food or some other thing for a period of time? No. Being hungry is not holy. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> but I am transformed by humbly acknowledging to God, I am poor and needy. I am so weak that a granola bar can make or break me. So make me hungry for you, God. May I turn to you for sustenance. And through that practice of obedience and submission, the spirit transforms me, not the hunger. Do you hear the difference? Simply doing God's stuff doesn't bring about change. Beating yourself up over the head with a bunch of I ought to's isn't going to bring about change. Change happens when we participate in the means of grace for the sole purpose of receiving grace. God's work. We are just creating the environment in which God can do it. Changing us into the image of Jesus. Now, it's actually a whole lot like gardening. And I tell you this not from personal experience. But what I've been told, a gardener cannot make a plant grow. Did you know that? Not even Jeannie Dewey in all of her glory can make a plant grow. A gardener can only create the conditions in which a plant can grow, right? So here's the thing. God makes us holy. Simple as that. God is the one who can make sure we don't stay the same. But here's the thing. The flower of the grace of holiness is more apt to grow in soil that has been tilled and watered and fertilized. And so as we till and we water and we fertilize the soil of our hearts by participating in the means of grace faithfully over time, God's grace can flow through us more readily and transform us, bringing that flower of holiness to fruition. The faithful practice of these means of grace ultimately results in freedom. When I was in high school, I did these crazy piano competitions, and I would slave over these concertos, like 20-minute pieces of music. And I would discipline this discipline and this practice and practice and over and over, the same measures over and over again. But why? Through that discipline, I would ultimately experience freedom where I could sit at the piano and I could play the song and would flow through me, through the piano, into the ears of the listeners. And so that discipline ultimately resulted in freedom. And so together at this church, we want to be a people who can learn together how to put into practice the thing that Jesus said. We're going to encourage each other and challenge one another to participate in the means of grace in order that we might be transformed. And we will not, I'm sorry to tell you this, but we're not going to turn a blind eye if we see you walking around in spiritual footy pajamas. But we're going to call each other out and call each other to account and say, can we imagine a life transformed by the Spirit in which you are set 
free. When you are no longer a slave to the sin that keeps calling and keeps beckoning, you don't have to live that way anymore. And we will walk alongside one another into that spirit-empowered vision. Because at Mountain Home, Church of the Nazarene, we will not stay the same. We will respond to the Holy Spirit's call to walk down paths that lead to restoration through learning and growth in community. May we never be satisfied with being merely hearers of the word, but may we be doers of the word as well. As it says in James 4, if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror. For they look at themselves and on going away immediately forget what they look like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. I want to give you a chance to respond to Jesus today. Maybe you've never said yes for the first time to Jesus, and today's the day. Confess your sin. Acknowledge your need for God, your inability to set yourself free and throw yourself into God's boundless, transformative love. Or maybe you have need of confession to acknowledge that you have indeed been wearing those spiritual footy pajamas long since they have ceased to fit. Or maybe you need to respond as an act of obedience to say yes to the Holy Spirit's power to transform, to not just forgive you, but to set you free from the power of sin. We call that work the grace of sanctification. And we're going to sing a song and the band, you guys can come, but I want you to hear these lyrics before I even sing it. You don't know it. It's probably new, but I want you to listen to it as it says, Spirit of the living God, when you speak and when you move, When you do what only you can do, it changes us. It changes what we see, and it changes what we seek. Spirit of the living God, would you move among us now, even as we open our hearts to what you might want to do and say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Spirit of the living God. We come before you and ask that you would do your work in us. We acknowledge that we don't have it. Lord, we do not have what it takes to be set free from sin, no matter how many times we try. Lord, it's not enough. We are slaves. And so, Lord, would you break the chains, break the chains that bind us, set us free. Your blood is enough to call us into a new way of being. Would you empower us with your grace as we practice those disciplines, those means of grace, in order that our hearts, the soil of our hearts, might be ready for what you might want to plant within. Lord, we acknowledge it's all you. But we say yes, a thousand times yes, to your sanctifying work. We ask for all of this in the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks be to God. Would you, beloved, extend your hands to receive the benediction? Beloved, Christ Church, may you open your heart to the work of grace that God wants to do within you, not only forgiving you from sin, but setting you free. May you walk in the hope of sanctification as God does within you what you cannot do for yourself. Go in action and go in peace.
you are dismissed. Amen.